Deep in New York City, in downtown Manhattan, there is a street which sits just north of Little Italy and Chinatown. But there is little to connect its name with either. This is Kenmare Street. Surrounded by Italian and Chinese street names, I wondered how Kenmare Street just got its name. So I went digging. I found a story of famine, emigration, slums and street politics, but above all, survival. A real New York story, if you like. How thousands of Kenmare famine survivors of the Lansdowne estate came to New York simply because they were made an offer they couldn't refuse. How they settled in the notorious five points of New York in slum conditions, but way better than what they had left in Ireland. They worked, they saved and they got out. How a son of these pioneers was one of the first Irish-American streetwise politicians of New York, Big Tim Sullivan of Tammany Hall, champion of the poor and embroiled in causes both noble and dark. His reputation as the King of the Bowery still echoes today, the man who went from newspaper boy to gangster politician to congressman, who used his power to have a street in Lower Manhattan named in honour of his Kerry mother, Kenmare Street. First to County Kerry and the story of famine and emigration. Local Senator Mark Daly. I suppose where I first came across the story was in Jorline's book, which is really a very comprehensive history of Lord Lansdowne and the Lansdowne estate. And everyone in Kinmare would have some connection to the estate historically because obviously they owned pretty much everything up until the turn of, of the previous century, up in the 1900s, Land Acts. And in that book, of course, was the story of the immigrants who were shipped abroad because it was cheaper for Lord Lansdowne to ship them to America and a lot of them ended up in the Five Points. What Lord Lansdowne's agent did, Lord Trench, was that he calculated that it was costing about £12 a year to you know, feed one person in a workhouse and that it would be cheaper and that was every year, so if they kept feeding them, it was 12, 24. So it was cheaper on a one-off cost to send them abroad and send them to New York and to North America. Geraldine, author, Khmer native and National Library archivist, has made this story his life's work. There were 3,000 paupers from the Lansdowne estate in the Khmer workhouse for whom both the landlord and the strong tenant farmers had to pay heavy poor rates in order to maintain them. Trench decided that it cost £14,000 per annum to maintain these people in the workhouse, whereas for the same amount of money he could provide them with assisted emigration to the United States and there would be a permanent, and I won't call it a final solution, a permanent solution to the problem of pauperism. The remedy I proposed was as follows, that Lord Lansdowne should forthwith offer free emigration to every man, woman and child now in the poorhouse or receiving relief and chargeable to his estate that even supposing they all accepted this offer, the total, 
together with a small sum per head for outfit and a few shillings on landing, would not exceed from £13,000 to £14,000, a sum less than it would cost to support them in the workhouse for a single year. And I plainly proved that it would be cheaper to him, and better for them, to pay for their emigration at once than to continue to support them at home. He went to Lord Lansdowne and he set this out for him and Lansdowne gave him a cheque for £8,000 initially and he commenced his scheme of emigration. His economies were very harsh in terms of the emigrants. Ship's provisions consisted of one pound of bread, flour or meal and eight ounces of water per day. Now, these were starvation rations and yet in that first phase of the emigration these people went out without proper clothing and without adequate provisions. Then the local press, the Cork Examiner in particular, began to make an outcry about the condition of these people. And in addition, it wasn't just the Cork Examiner, but at the port of arrival in New York, the New York Herald and the New York Tribune, the two leading newspapers in New York, published absolutely harrowing descriptions of the conditions under which these people arrived. And this was unprecedented. It is really lamentable to see the vast number of unfortunate creatures that are almost daily cast on our shores, penniless and without physical energy to earn a day's living. The editorial leader of the New York Herald, March 1851. Yesterday, groups of these hapless beings were to be seen congregated about the City Hall Park and in Broadway, looking the very picture of despair, misery, disease and want. On inquiry we ascertained that they had arrived here by the ship Sir Robert Peel and that they had been, for the most part, tenants of the Marquis of Lansdowne on his County Kerry estate, ejected without mercy by him and shipped for America in this wholesale way. For them to end up in the Five Points, what was described as one of the most notorious slums on the earth, even Charles Dickens went to visit it and wrote about it and how terrible it was. But that was in comparison to Ireland in the famine. So for those who ended up in the Five Points, this was a lot better than what they came from. And it really is an extraordinary story, not only because, you know, when you think of all those people who went through Ellis Island, who went through New York, from all the countries in the world, from all the towns, the cities and the villages, and they arrived onto Manhattan Island. And, you know, to think that there's a street named Ken Mayer on Manhattan Island, when there are so many avenues, which are just numbers and street names going to 258th Street, and there are a limited number of streets in, in Manhattan, and yet to have a street named after a town in the southwest of Ireland is absolutely extraordinary. What was it about this notorious Five Points which drove Charles Dickens to write about it in American Notes and Martin Scorsese to film it in Gangs of New York, depictions which spanned two centuries? 
And why did the Lansdowne emigrants gravitate to this ravaged area? It was cheap. Built on a drained swamp and canal, the land was damp, foul-smelling and frequently flooded. Its close proximity to the harbour meant there was plenty of opportunity for cheap labour, trade and, of course, street politics. Above all, it was better than the place they had left. And as emigrants do, they travelled and settled in clusters, living cheek by jowl in the narrow streets of the Five Points. Where would this area be in modern-day New York? I head downtown with my two maps from 1850 and 2012. In Lower Chinatown, two streets converge on both maps, Baxter and Worth Streets, two streets of the Five Points. There in the corner, I meet with New York historian James Nevius. The term Five Points was coined by the New York Post to describe this intersection where there were a cluster of buildings that were in really sorry shape. Four of the Five Points have been taken away. The only one that remains is the corner of Baxter and Worth. There it is in all its glory. The term Five Points stops being applied just to this specific intersection, but becomes the name that everybody knows. No one knows where the exact boundaries of the Five Points were. Everybody tries to guess, but that's the same is true today. I mean, if you were to ask ten people where Chinatown starts and ends, you would get ten different answers. There had been Irish in New York from really the beginning of the diocese. I mean, they picked St. Patrick to be the patron of the cathedral all the way back in 1807 because the Irish were the single fastest-growing group of Catholics in the city. The Catholic Church had been pretty much dominated by the French up to that point, and so the oldest Catholic Church in the city was the French Church. But it was the Irish that were the group. So we think of New York Irish as sort of being this post-1845 phenomenon, which isn't true. There were many Irish here before that point. It just, they came so thick and fast uh, in 1845, 1847, that that sort of dwarfed those numbers. I mean, 1847, 200,000 Irish came to New York in a city that only had about 600,000 people. I mean, just... The city changed overnight. It absolutely is. And by 1860, well, there's no Irish city bigger than New York except Dublin by 1860. And it's all within these streets. And it's all within these streets. This church, we don't have good, absolute records, but we know that there were 10,000 members of this parish by the 1850s, and there were probably, I mean, it's a good guess that there were 20,000 members of this parish by the end of the Civil War. Martin Scorsese's movie, Gangs of New York, portrayed on film the five points as a hellish concoction of vice, corrupt politics and grisly gang warfare. And my challenge, by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives, born rightwise to this fine land, or the foreign hordes defiling it. I wonder how much the movie actually rang true. Was it as bad and violent as it seemed? Did Irish gangs actually defend buildings like this church in battle, as depicted in Gangs of New York? The answer is, well, sort of. I think that there was a lot of 
violence, as there often are in economically depressed neighborhoods. Uh, I think that that violence got worse over time. And so a lot of the things that are depicted in Gangs of New York, the movie, can be traced starting in the 1820s and ending in the 18, I would say, 80s. So uh, Scorsese takes that as his focal point and then sort of brings in all of these other things, the election riot, the burning of the church, all of these things, the 4th of July fights that really did happen, sort of, and <laughs> brings them all together into the film. So this church hits its Irish peak in the 1860s. The notoriety of the Five Points is all about poverty, tenements and slums. It's time to check out one of the original tenement blocks that still stands today. Uh, we're going to just make a couple more stops. One is that we're going to look at the oldest of these tenement apartment buildings that would have been built for the Irish. And then we're going to head up towards Kenmare Street, the only street in my knowledge that is named after a place in Ireland in the entire city. Directly across the street from us, at 65 Mott, is this seven-story, very nondescript tenement apartment building. No one knows exactly when it was built, but it was described in the 1870s as being 50 years old. So if that was true, it was built sometime in the early to mid-1820s, which probably makes it not just the oldest tenement apartment building, but the first tenement apartment building that you could very well be looking at the beginning of a design revolution because tenements come to be the most ubiquitous form of architecture in New York City. Through the 19th century, uh, the tenement sort of becomes refined that it is four three-room apartments on each floor. So very stuffy, very crowded. You have to imagine that some of these apartments maybe just held a, a couple and other apartments were so crowded that one family would rent the front room and then they would lease out the back two rooms to someone else who couldn't afford to get an apartment on their own. So you might have two families, you might have 20 people living in this just incredibly small amount of space with no toilet or running water of any kind. If the reputation of life in the tenements was notorious, that was nothing in comparison to the publicity generated by Charles Dickens. His book, American Notes, firmly damned the five points in New York as an area of utter depravity. Let us go on again and plunge into the five points. We've seen no beggars in the streets by night or day, but of other kinds of strollers, plenty. Poverty, wretchedness and vice are rife enough where we are going now. This is the place, these narrow ways, diverging to the right and left, and reeking everywhere with dirt and filth. Such lives as are led here bear the same fruits here as elsewhere. The coarse and bloated faces at the doors have counterparts at home and all the wide world over. Debauchery has made the very houses prematurely old. See how the rotten beams are tumbling down and how the patched and broken windows seem to scowl dimly like eyes that have been hurt in drunken fries. Many of those pigs live here. Do they ever wonder why their masters walk upright in lieu of going on all fours? And why they talk instead of grunting? 
he really put five points on the map because every, people knew it existed, but you wouldn't go there. You know, why would you'd have no reason to? It wasn't part of your. So Dickens goes and he writes American Notes. I mean, American Notes is sort of full of interest. It's not just about New York, it's about his entire trip and every place he has interesting things to say. But he's, he reserves a lot of his vitriol for New York because. You know, in essence, he says, I know slums, I'm Charles Dickens, and you've never seen a slum until you've seen this one, which then piques everyone's interest to come see it for themselves. So, in many ways, the idea of slumming is born because people have read Dickens and they want to check out five points for themselves. They, they lived in high-rise apartments, now, the overcrowding was absolutely horrendous. By our standards, these people lived in thatched, mud-walled, earthen-floored, one-roomed cabins in Ireland, without chimneys, without windows. And when they arrived in these apartments, which had wooden floors, plaster ceilings, and at least two large windows. And on average, shall we say, the living space was twice what it would have been in their cabins in Ireland, that this must have seemed like the lap of luxury. They were extraordinarily adaptable people, resilient, adaptable people. There was an emigrant savings bank in the Five Points district and hey presto within six months or a year of their arrival many of the emigrants were opening accounts in the bank for perhaps $200 $300 and continued actively saving with the result that by about 1855 1860 some of these people who were working at the most menial end of the scale in, in the Five Points area and other parts of New York they had sums of no less then I think the highest was $10,000. The records of the Emigrant Savings Bank show us the determination of the Irish to move up and out by any means that was not barred to them, via the fire service, the fledgling police forces and through the politics of the beer taverns. Big Tim Sullivan is the classic case of just how much the Khmer Irish adapted and evolved. Born in 1862 in the Five Points to Catherine Connolly of Khmer, Tim grew up on Baxter Street in the depths of the slums. The young man, however, set his sights high, starting with his street kid newspaper network, moving into distribution, tavern owning, vaudeville theatre and, of course, politics. I think Tim Sullivan, he's a big success story. I mean, he is the outstanding success story of the, of the Lansdowne immigrants. But he does epitomise 
the great resilience, the spirit, the resourcefulness of these people. I went looking to see if I could find any relatives of Big Tim today. And who do I discover but two cousins, descendants of the man himself. They have their own stories to tell and how a kid from the slums of the Five Points got to name a street in Manhattan after his mother. I think cousin Ty is here. That is Ty. I meet Bob Wagner and Ty Sullivan outside the Hotel Soho on the site of Big Tim's old political clubhouse. He was my great, great, great granduncle. Um, so he was. Bob uh, and Ty go through the many branches of the Sullivan Patrick. family tree. And then Patrick had Patrick and Tim. And then Tim had Tim Sr. had my Tim, my father Tim. Right. So, so it would have been his, actually, technically my father's uncle. Uh, so, uh, Big Tim and your, uh, Big Tim and your great-grandfather were brothers. Right. Tim was my great-grandfather. He had a number of children out of wedlock with people other than his wife. And he was involved in the, uh, theatrical ventures, um, and he would have children with a number of different stage actresses. Uh, as best we could find out, and I could say this, and she really has no surviving descendants, her name was Christy McDonald, and she was from Pictou, Nova Scotia, and um, my grandfather was conceived from that relationship, and he was put in the New York Family Hospital when he was 21 days old. He was adopted in 1903 by an Italian family named uh, Marino. And he was raised literally 100, 200 yards away on Elizabeth Street. Just here. Right over here. But uh, the name that he was put into the New York Family Hospital was Timothy D. Sullivan. Meanwhile, Big Tim, his father, was running his Manhattan political empire just one street away. He was the only politician in town. So how did the kid with the news round become the political king of the Bowery? He was a bootleg by the time he was five or six years old. He then became a newsboy, but he was an enterprising newsboy. He suddenly realised that he could be useful to Tammany Hall politicians by, shall we say, using his news network, but he could carry messages, and that was his, his start, shall we say, Tammany Hall was the infamous Democratic Party political machine in New York City in the late 19th century. If you were in with Tammany, you were in with everyone. And Big Tim quickly learned how to play Tammany politics. Tammany Hall was a very unique um, social and political organisation. They would provide uh, coal in the winter. They would provide jobs for the... um, the husbands, sometimes even the wives and the kids. They would get uh, people out of trouble with the police. They would sponsor um, outings in the summertime, clam bakes, excursions on ferry boats to Queens, up the Hudson River. You have to realize this was a really welcomed respite to get out of the tenements in the blazing summer days. 
Not only was he generous in spirit, but Big Tim also had a charismatic, imposing physical presence. From all accounts, he was over six foot. He was barrel-chested, very imposing, blue eyes, uh, receding brown hair. And he would just go into a pub or a saloon or a clubhouse, and he had a natural charisma. People would just gravitate toward him. And um, apparently, he only went up to third grade. And I guess he felt self-conscious about his uh, lack of education and his diction and his grammar. He had a um, high-pitched voice that didn't fit his stature. Boys, I am a Democrat. I've been a Democrat all my life. I have voted the Democratic ticket straight all my life, and I never scratched a ticket since I cast my first vote when I was 17, and I never will. The politicians would give out turkeys uh, for Christmas, hams on Easter. They would give out soup during the cold months. They would give out shoes. Just trying to provide some material creature comforts for the, uh, for the people down there. Again, it really solidified the vote, and people were appreciative of it. And they knew what they had to do. They had to get out and they had to vote, sometimes two, three, four times in one election. No method was considered unscrupulous in getting the Tammany vote out, even if it came to massaging the turnout somewhat. When they vote with their whiskers in, you take them to the barber and scrape off their chin fringe. Then you vote them again with side lilacs and mustache, and then to the barber again and off come the sides, then you vote them a third time with just a mustache. By the time he was elected to the State Assembly in uh, 1886, he was 23 years old and he had six uh, saloons. One of his saloons was on Center Street, right across from City Hall, and it was uh, not uncommon for judges and uh, assistant DAs to go in there and uh, make deals in the back room. His networking was stupendous. He, he was known as the King of uh, Lower Manhattan, um, he was into gambling, vaudeville, prize fighting. No prize fight could take place within the state of New York without Tim Sullivan's permission. People would come to him, he would write them out checks, uh, he would give away money. He invested in horse racing, he invested in the uh, amusements in Coney Island, a racetrack in Somerset, New Jersey, just a whole bunch of different ventures. He made millions and gave away millions. At one point, he and his syndicate are said to have made a receipt of about three million per annum, which was huge money at, at the time. But on the other hand, he uh, was open to all ethnic uh, groups and uh, influences and was prepared to to work with anybody uh, who could promote his particular ideas and interests. It was uh, not uncommon for uh, Tim to hobnob and um, try to earn the trust of other ethnicities, the Chinese, the Jewish uh, population. And I had read somewhere where uh, Tim would actually put on a yarmulke 
and go down to the Jewish neighborhoods uh, around Election Day. He would actually uh, go to the Italian neighborhoods and he would actually sing a few lines of Danny Boy in Italian. Along with the creative methods of getting the vote out for Tammany Hall, Big Tim also had a social conscience. It seemed that this was informed by his mother and sister's tough experience growing up in the Five Points. Sullivan uh, would often talk about how his sister Marianne went to work at uh, six, seven years old, and this would be unheard of in um, Western societies. His mother would actually take in laundry for the neighbors, probably getting um, a penny or two for washing them and hanging them out. But um, he had a uh, an affinity for them, and uh, when he was sponsoring some legislation that favored women, he says he knows what it looks like to have his mother or his sister go out and be broken down while they're at a young age. So this was something that he was very cognizant of. There was a notorious factory fire in New York. It was a factory which employed mainly women, sweated labor. But in this instance, when the fire broke out, all the doors had been locked and some hundreds perished in the resulting conflagration. And Tim Sullivan was moved by this to work for legislation to improve conditions and uh, safety in in uh, factories in which the labour force was predominantly female. There was an old saying back then that they did a lot of good. They may not have been the most upright people, but they did a lot of good, and they ushered in uh, the progressive era. They were the precursor of... Um, all these social programs brought in by uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. So they really laid the framework and the foundation to improve the lot and parcel of uh, New York City. He was elected to Congress in uh, 1901 or 1903. By his own admission, he really didn't care for Washington he had said they used congressmen for hitching posts down there. He says there's so many congressmen, so many senators. Basically, in D.C., he was a very small fish in a very big pond. Back in New York, it was just the opposite. He was a big fish in a small pond. I am a thorough New Yorker and have no narrow prejudices. In the city he loved, Tim was determined to honor the memory of his mother, Catherine Connolly of Kenmare. In 1913, in typical opportunistic fashion, he seized his chance. A few blocks were being demolished downtown to make a new street, and the new street needed a new name. When the Williamsburg Bridge was opened, was built, they had widened the street. And um, since there was already a Catherine Street, since there was already a Sullivan Street, I guess he did... Uh, some creative thinking, and figured what's the next best thing that would pay tribute to his mother. And um, it was Kenmare. And um, it's with us today. After such a life of glamour and infamy, Big Tim suffered a somewhat inglorious death, but one that has only added to his legendary status. He died in 1913. He 
was living with his brother. He was in the uh, last stages of tertiary syphilis. He was found on the tracks of uh, the local railway, and uh, he was put in the morgue, and he was left there unidentified for 13 days, and he was classified as a vagrant, despite the fact that he was wearing a custom-made suit, custom-made hat. He had diamond cufflinks with the monogram uh, TDS. There was no damage, physical trauma to his face. And uh, the individual who signed his death certificate, uh, Dr. Riegelman, had known Tim for over 25 years, yet he signed off on him as a vagrant. And there was a policeman, uh, Peter Perfield, who uh, was looking at the bodies for one final identification, and he actually recognized him as uh, Senator Sullivan. And uh, the alarm was sounded, and um, he could have been buried in an unmarked grave, and no one would have known what became of him. Big Tim dead, 13 days in morgue, run down by New Haven freight train on August 31, the day he escaped from his guards, saved from Potter's Field, body would have gone there but for chance recognition by policeman Perfield, identified at Bellevue, coroner who sat upon it knew dead man well, his estate estimated at two million dollars. But it was Big Tim's funeral which really left its mark. Its size and ceremony reflected the celebrity of the man, the King of the Bowery. It was one of the largest uh, funerals ever held in Manhattan. About 25,000 people turned out. It was held at Old St. Patrick's Cathedral. This was the centre of the uh, Irish community before the new St. Patrick's Church was built uptown. It is said in, in the Dictionary of American Biography that no less than 20,000 sincere mourners followed his, his coffin. And I can well imagine that that is true because uh, he had dispensed so much charity with his, with his money, whether ill-gotten or otherwise. And uh, he was a charming, warm, jovial, giant of a man. There were purple and black buntings placed on fire escapes and moments of silence in movie theaters. And it was taken really, really hard by uh, the people down there. Tim's coffin was set on two stools in the assembly room on the fourth floor of the building. 20,000 people turned out to pay their last respects to the big fella. The two doors to the clubhouse opened at 5 a.m., and from then until midnight, downtown New York paid its last respects to the big fella. The mourners who filed past the pier came from all walks of life, rich and poor, old and young. And according to the New York Times, behind the Irishman walked the Jew, the Italian, the Frenchman, the Scandinavian, the Chinese, the Spaniard, and even the Turk. It was, in fact, a procession of all nations. My grandfather would have been uh, 10 years old, and he was actually a choir boy at the funeral of his father, Tim Sullivan, unbeknownst to him at the time. I'm sure looking back, it was pretty easy for him to connect the dots and realize it. It's really mind-boggling. 
to actually participate in that way in a, um, a parent's funeral and not have any idea of uh, the person's relation to you. Bags to riches. Bags to riches, yeah. And that's why I think, you know, it was still, you know, so popular even in death and, and lucky. It's still said that his funeral down here was the largest funeral in New York City history still to today. Manhattan's Canmare Street stands today as testimony to Big Tim Sullivan's mother and those other thousands who benefited from the bizarre economic twist of fate. He had no chance by any measure. He should not have made the USA. But through his own ability and hard work and intelligence, he managed to make it to one of the highest offices in the United States. That's truly something that everybody from Kenmare should be proud. And he left his mark by, of course, dedicating a street in New York in honour of uh, his mother and where she came from. For the town of Kenmare, that's extraordinary that we have a, we have a street named after the town in New York City. 